Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Father, we thank you for another year. We thank you for another year in which your promises stand, in which your word is good, in which we can trust you, in which we can have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught, the things that have been passed down to us. Father, please would you speak to us now. Thank you for this opportunity to be together. And as we think about you, as we think about what you have said to us, would you do the work in us that needs doing, the changes that need to happen. And Father, where we need fresh resolve, would you give us that fresh resolve? Where we need uh, a knowledge of your love and your forgiveness and your acceptance of us, would you give us that? And so, Father, please speak to us now. May we hear, may we listen. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've uh, taken a look at one of the term cards, then you may, well, you will have noticed that we are starting a new series in Luke. We had a bit of a preview of Luke over Christmas, so we did our Christmas passages from Luke, um, and a couple before that on wealth as well. But we're beginning now, chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going on with Luke until Easter, when we'll be looking at the passion narratives, the stories about Jesus' death and resurrection. And so today we're looking at these introductory verses in Luke's Gospel, verses 1 to 4. And Luke's Gospel is unusual. It's the only Gospel that starts this way. John has that famous introduction, in the beginning was the Word. He just goes straight into it. Mark goes straight into Jesus' uh, Jesus' ministry, and Matthew starts with a long list of names of Jesus' family history. But Luke starts in this way. And Luke is often thought to be a gospel more for a Gentile audience than for a Jewish audience. And that makes sense. Matthew is thought to be more for a Jewish audience. So he starts with that list of names because the genealogy is really important. Establishing Jesus as that Jewish Messiah. He is the Messiah that was promised to the Jews. For the whole world ultimately, but for the Jews first. Whereas Luke, writing to a more of a Gentile audience begins his gospel in the way that they began formal documents in that time. Serious documents would begin this way. This is why I've written this letter. This is the purpose of this. And this is what I want you to get out of it. And whereas Luke writes the rest of his gospel, uh, this is from the commentators, I don't know Greek this well, but from the commentators, the rest of Luke's gospel is written in very common Greek because he wanted everyone to be able to understand it. If he was writing today, he'd probably have spoken in English, because that is the most commonly spoken language in the world. And so he chose to write his gospel in the most accessible language at the time, which was Greek. 
and as I say, in the common Greek, the normal kind of marketplace Greek. But this introduction is written in very fine Greek, the best Greek. Again, writing to, to sort of lay out his document, the purpose of it, for his reader. And we see who his reader is there in verse 3. So Luke is writing to this guy called Theophilus. Um, we don't know who he is. Um, Luke refers to him as most excellent Theophilus. So, you know, possibly he was someone fairly important in life. But Luke doesn't just want to butter this guy up. He's got a purpose for him. And Luke's purpose for his gospel, for Theophilus, is the same as his purpose for all of us. But we're just going to go through this very simply today and work through these four short verses. So Luke begins this way. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. So Luke begins by acknowledging the fact that there are other gospel witnesses out there it's highly likely that Matthew and Mark were already written by the time Luke was writing his gospel. And so Luke is not disparaging those others, but he's saying, I'm going to write an orderly account, a slightly different approach to the things, so that you, Theophilus, can read this and understand, and us too, by extension. So as I say, not disparaging of the other accounts, but just acknowledging there were other accounts of the remarkable events of Jesus' life, the things that have been fulfilled among us. And the things that happened among them were remarkable. Remarkable teachings that people of other faiths or no faith acknowledge as beautiful ways to live life. The golden rule, love others as you love yourself. The Beatitudes. And then parables like the wise builder and the foolish builder have passed into popular culture. Even people who may never have been to church in their life are often familiar with some of Jesus' more famous parables. So remarkable teachings, remarkable healings, the blind, the sick, the lame, lepers, even resurrections. So in Luke's Gospel, we see Jesus raising a widow's son to life, having compassion on her and bringing her son back to life. Remarkable teachings, remarkable healings, and of course, Jesus' remarkable death and resurrection. Now, you might not think that a death is remarkable, but what is remarkable about Jesus' death was that he could have so easily avoided it. But the bit of Luke we're particularly going to be looking at in the next few weeks is the point where Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. He knows that is where he will die. He knows that is where the pain is coming, and yet he sets his face to Jerusalem because he knows that his death is necessary. Knowing what would await him there, his kingship, Jesus' kingship, would mean dying for his people, to die in our place, to take the judgment we deserve so that we might be forgiven, so that we might go free. Jesus' remarkable teachings, his remarkable healings, his remarkable death, and then, of course, his remarkable resurrection. And unlike Lazarus, who Jesus raises in John's Gospel, probably the most famous of the resurrections, unlike the widow's son, who Jesus brought back from life, back to life, 
those guys would die again. And if they had faith in Christ, then ultimately they would rise again in the future. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it was to never die again. It was with a new kind of body. A real physical body, he would eat and drink with his disciples. But a body that was able to move quickly from place to place. A body that was able to pass through walls. I don't know if you've read any of C.S. Lewis on this. He says, think about us walking through... So we often think, you know, our ghost can walk through walls because a ghost is less real than the wall. But C.S. Lewis says, no, think about us walking through thick fog. We are able to pass through the fog because we are more solid than the fog. We are more real than the fog. The Lord Jesus' real physical body, more real than the things that we see around us. That's the kind of body that he will give to all of those who trust in him when he returns. Remarkable teachings, remarkable healings, remarkable death, and Jesus' remarkable resurrection. Remarkable events indeed. The things Luke writes that happened among us. But not just things that happened to happen. Jesus didn't just pop up out of nowhere and do a load of amazing stuff. Luke describes them as, verse 1, the things that have been fulfilled among us. Not just out of nowhere, but fulfillments of promises made centuries beforehand. If you're following along, flick over to verse 67. And this is in Zechariah's song, Zechariah being John the Baptist's dad. This is the point where Zechariah has got his voice back. He lost his voice after he failed to trust God. He gets his voice back and he sings this song. And in verse 67 we read, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then verse 70, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. So Zechariah connected the mission of John, his son, which was to announce Jesus, with the promises of a Messiah given almost 2,000 years earlier. Take a quick look at verse 73 if you're following. Uh, where he says, this is a fulfillment of the oath that God swore to our father Abraham. Now we know that Abraham lived 1,800 years before Jesus. And Zechariah, in this prophecy, says, Jesus is fulfilling that promise to Abraham. So as Luke writes, he is writing about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as, verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So this is Luke saying, and this is against what so many people would say today. Perhaps this is what you've been taught. Perhaps this might be what some think. That the events of Jesus' life happened, and then someone told their friend, who told their brother, who told their sister, who told another friend, and then about 200 years later, someone went, man, we need to start writing this things, these things down. And it had been passed on and passed on and passed on and passed on and corrupted and amplified, and Jesus was just a guy to start with. But over time, they added miracles, and they added healings, and they added teachings, and 
we were left with the Gospels that we have today. And Luke says, absolutely not. He says, I researched carefully and I spoke to eyewitnesses and what you've got in your hands is what I carefully wrote down. Now, the Gospel writers were different guys. John was different to Matthew, was different to Mark. Uh, with John, we suspect he was probably the Apostle John. So he himself was an eyewitness. So with Luke, it's second-hand, good history. He spoke to eyewitnesses. He did his research. With John, it's first-hand. He saw these things himself. With Mark, it's almost certainly Peter's testimony. So in the second century, we have a record of someone who said, oh yeah, Mark wrote down what Peter told him. Peter had been around preaching. Then at some point, they went, Peter, you're getting old. You're going to die soon. We should write some of this stuff down. Peter is Mark's testimony. And we get details in Mark's Gospel, which you couldn't have got unless you were Peter. Little things that aren't in, Mark, in Matthew and Luke. Little details. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and then said, and the other Gospels, we got what Jesus said, but we don't get the, he turned and looked. Peter knew that because he was there. But Luke, coming back, because it's Luke we're talking about today, with Luke we know he was a doctor. He was an educated man. So he knew what he was doing. He did his research and he wrote down. And even here we get some interesting details. So the stories of the shepherds, well that's only in Luke's Gospel. And the story of Jesus getting lost and then found at the temple, only in Luke's Gospel. And so you think, okay, why is that? We'll flip forward, if you're following again, to chapter 2, verse 19. This is after the story of the shepherds. So the angels come and tell the shepherds. The shepherds come and go to meet them at the stable or the place where the manger was. And verse 19 we read, so it's all these things have happened, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And if you don't know that Luke had interviewed people, you'd kind of think, how does Luke know that? And how does he know these things? Well, again, look forward to chapter 2, verse 51. After Jesus has been lost and then found at the temple as a 12-year-old boy, then Jesus went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Once again, Mary, therefore, almost certainly one of the people that Luke went and interviewed. We know that she was a part of the early church, we know that Luke was a part of the early church. He travels with Paul in the book of Acts. And so the strong likelihood is he went and interviewed Mary. And that's how we have these unique stories in Luke's gospel, but not in the others. So it's not made-up stories. It's not myths and legends amplified and changed down the years. What we have is reliable history. And if you want to look into that more, I've put a link in the service sheet. Um, it's to uh, the UCCF page. Uh, the, well, the B thinking is from UCCF, Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship. And they've got a, a whole page of articles and videos. Is the Bible reliable? Now, if there are things you can read if you're a reader, but there's a brilliant video on there that I watched uh, a few years ago, which is just, it's, it's fascinating. It's a guy called Peter Williams. Um, he works in Cambridge. He's a super nerd, genius researcher. There are a number of ancient languages that he knows that basically no one else in the world knows. He's one of these guys. He sets it at some time. He was setting himself to learn a new ancient language every year. And he's thinking, wow, okay, you know, he's, he's one of those guys, just on another level. But he goes through a whole load of really interesting, these little details. 
that we might just read over because we're not familiar with them. But he says things, if you think about it, how would they have known that? If they were writing 200 years later, how would they have accurately described the kinds of trees that grew in the area? So Zacchaeus, in this gospel, climbs up a sycamore fig tree. And sycamore fig trees only grow in a very narrow band of latitude and longitude, which happens to be exactly where Zacchaeus lived in that time. Again, if you're making that up 200 years later, that's the kind of thing you just can't make up. You wouldn't have known it. They didn't have the kind of records available to them at that time, if you were living in the wrong area, to have known that. And a really fascinating one, loads of research on names. So the names of disciples in the Gospels, some of them have nicknames. Some of them are just called by their name all the time, and some of them are called by nicknames. Which guys are called by nicknames? The guys who have really common names. Now someone, for whatever reason, uh, a Jewish lady decided to go through funeral records, cemetery records, and record all the names that were popular in the time of history when Jesus was alive. And then she wrote this book and put it on a shelf, and obviously no one read it because it was really boring. And then someone else came along and thought, okay, well, if that's right, if those are the names that were common at that time, and if the Gospels are true, then the names that are common in the Gospels should be the same as the names that are common in these historical records. And they match basically exactly. If you take a top 10 common names list from this lady's book and a top 10 common names in the gospel, you know, number three and number four are the other way around, something like that. The accuracy is crazy. And again, that was research that was only done a few years ago. If someone was making this up a couple hundred years later, there's no way they could have found out that information. They just wouldn't have known. So the gospels that we have are so, so reliable. I recommend that video to you. It's quite long, it's about an hour, but you can put it on while you're doing the ironing or something like that. Just listen in. It really gives us confidence that we can trust this. But we don't need those kind of things. Those kind of things are helpful, those kind of things are great, but all we really need is God's Word. And that's where Luke finishes. He says, Theophilus, I've written this down, verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So we don't know what Theophilus knew before this date, but it seems that he'd heard something of the teachings about Jesus' life. And Luke says to Theophilus, look, with this you can be sure. And the same is true for us. If you want to read those other books, if you want to watch those videos, great. I think it you know, might be a good use of our time relative to some of the other things that we often choose to watch. Other things are good too. But um, ultimately, the first and the main thing that we want to read is God's Word. Um, and I came across some research recently by some guys in the States. And they did research over a, a long period, over thousands and thousands of people across hundreds and hundreds of churches. And they determined that the number one factor in Christian growth and maturity, in Christian service, in Christian love, in Christian evangelism, is Bible engagement. Now, if this is true, if it is God's Word, if it is the Gospels, the Epistles, the Old Testament, the New Testament, that gives us certainty concerning the things that we've been taught, that gives us certainty that God loves us, that gives us certainty that our past is forgiven, that gives us certainty that 
a better world is coming in the future, then it's no surprise that it is engaging with the Bible. Sundays, midweek, one-to-one meeting up with others to talk about the Bible, meeting up in the small groups that happen in the church to look at the Bible, and reading the Bible for ourselves, then it's no surprise that that is the biggest factor in Christian growth. We thought about it a bit last week, and I wanted to print this out last week, but um, I couldn't get the printer to work, so you've got it this week. And I'm seeing a lot of people that I know were here last week, so welcome back. Um, And it is a short article on hearing God speak, an encouraging article by Tim Chester, not a beating yourself up, this is something we should be doing, and if you're not, you should feel guilty article but an encouraging, inspiring article, Hearing God Speak. Tim Chester, every morning we can hear God speak, or evening whenever we read our Bibles. And there's an old phrase that that I heard ten years or so ago which stuck with me. No exhortation without instruction. That is, don't tell people to do something unless you're going to tell them how to do it. And I think sometimes we can be guilty of that, saying, read your Bible. And people are thinking, but I don't know how. I don't know what to do. And so what I've got here is I've got Christian Essentials for your smartphone or computer. Now, if you're not on computer, um, hang in there. We'll come to that in a second. But I reckon most people in the room probably these days have access to a computer at least or a tablet. And many of us, probably even a larger number, have access to a smartphone. And I know many people whose personal Bible reading has been revolutionized by reading the Bible on their phone rather than reading it in a Bible. It means you can always have a Bible with you. So the first number one app that I put down is just the Bible app. Download that. Wherever you go, you can have a Bible with you. Um, The one I've recommended has translations in essentially every language and the main English translations that you'll know. There's another one. We've watched uh, some videos here from the Read Scripture guys. So we watched an extract of the Ephesians uh, video uh, a couple of months back. And they've got an app which has a bit to read and then a bit to watch every day of that works better for you. Thirdly, the Word at Work daily email. Now, I was speaking to someone uh, in the congregation. She's not here today, but I still won't embarrass her by saying her name. And I was speaking to her a couple of weeks ago, and I said, you know, what do you do for your personal Bible reading? And she said, oh, that email that you guys recommended about 18 months ago, that's the first thing I read every morning, because it's delivered to your inbox about 4 a.m. She said, I wake up, and before I get out of bed, and before I get accosted by the children and the, the work of the day, then I read that email and I pray the prayer, and then I go. And she said, it's been brilliant. So that's an option. I'll leave the others for you to read. And then if you're feeling really ambitious, and you think, you know what, maybe this could be the year when I read the whole Bible, which, depending on your reading speed, might take 15 to 30 minutes a day in terms of the amount of time it would take. There's an article at the bottom, Resolved to Read the Bible, and that's got a whole load of different Bible plans to make it easier. Some of them take over two years instead of one year. Um, I particularly enjoy the plan described for shirkers and slackers. So uh, if that's how you feel when it comes to Bible reading, then um, that one might be for you. But also there's these. Um, so if you're old school, you don't have a computer, you don't have a smartphone, and you'd rather do it the old-fashioned way, then I'll put a pile of these at the back. It's free. Resources, articles, ideas. It would be lovely for all of these to go because this is really old now, and they brought out a new version, but it's still just as good. Well, Luke writes, so that we can have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught about the Lord Jesus. And so as we close, I'm going to pray that that would be 
what would happen for us in 2019, that this is a year where we are more sure, more certain, and more full of joy because of what we know in the Lord Jesus than ever before. Let's pray. Father God, you wrote a book. You gave us this book. We can open up your words. We can look at our phones. We can check our emails. We can look online. And we can read your word anytime. Father, what a, what, what a wonderful privilege. Forgive us that so often we think of it as a drudge, a duty, boring, dull but worthy. Father, please, give us eyes to see the wonder that we can know you, that we can hear from you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.